Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I'm your host, Scott Chaloner, and you join us on a sunny day here in the capital, in a week where we aren't quite sure whether a global pandemic or Russian interference constitutes a greater threat to the country. Only time will tell there. Once again on this week's show, I'll be exploring a new perspective on leadership, joined each week by a different CEO, CFO, director, president or government minister. Now, the aim here is to discover who these people are the people who get up each morning and make this country work. We discuss everything from training and recruitment woes to the lows of crisis management, and of course, the innovation and success that makes it entirely worthwhile in the end. We also get their take on the current economic and political landscape here in the UK. Um, We'll be joined later on in the programme by Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association, Liz Field. But first and foremost, we'll be joined by Heather Graham, the Business and Finance Director of APB Group a thriving civil engineering company which has been trading for over 30 years from the heart of the UK, headquartered in Cheadle, Staffordshire. As well as boasting an impressive portfolio, the firm's client base includes many prestigious and leading UK blue chip companies, including Network Rail, Balfour Beatty, Galliford Tri, Farrens, AMCO, Murphy's, the Canal and River Trust, the National Trust, English Heritage and Bam Nuttall, as well as a number of local authority clients. But you don't want to be hearing that from me. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Heather Graham onto the programme. Heather, very warm welcome to you today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. No problem at all. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Heather. Now, you're a civil engineering, geotechnical engineering and construction company in the Midlands with around 50 employees under you, of course. Tell me, how has your business changed in the wake of the COVID-19 situation and how have you adapted to meet the challenges of the pandemic? Because I can imagine that they've been tremendous. Um, We consider ourselves quite lucky, really. Um, We had a one essential project running at the time. So we're actually able to retain at least half our workforce, uh, which was an initial challenge in itself because you ask yourself the question, well, who do we retain and how are we fair in in that decision? Uh, But as usual, we took our collaborative approach to things and involved all our our, uh, employees and uh, we came to a very satisfactory conclusion taking into account people's personal circumstances, whether they had medical conditions or whether they live with elderly relatives. And we got to that point very quickly. Uh, I think the biggest challenge following that was actually making our site safe. So that uh, our health and safety uh, manager, Patrick, did a a sterling job of uh, putting a really good risk assessment in place straight away and everybody felt safe within 24 hours. So we were able to continue and the job is still ongoing now, thankfully. Uh, so all is well. And how do you think this pandemic is going to affect your industry in the long run? I think that very much depends on how uh, we rise the challenge. I think we could actually make a very positive out of this because I think the construction industry is something that can respond very quickly, providing it's given the right support. Uh, 
I do think it might be an opportunity to encourage new people into our sector and make it a more attractive proposition. I think in the past, it's probably not got the accolade that it deserves and people have been more happy to avoid it, thinking that it's a dirty job. Uh, so hopefully it, it will be positive in the long term. And much has been made during the pandemic and especially the lockdown period of the clarity of government guidelines. Have you been satisfied with that and comfortable that you've known what's been expected of you to continue to operate in a safe way? Yes, I think, yet again, I think our guidelines have been very good. I know a lot of people have been critical of uh, confusion and and, um, contradiction, but in our industry, there is no real room for manoeuvre. It, we really have to bite the bullet and get on with it in a, in a really safe manner. So it's been good and, and the government guidelines have been good in for us. Do you think as well that there might be some features of the lockdown period that could end up becoming a permanent fixture of the way we do business in this country, particularly with the move toward remote working and the reviews of our working practices during this time? Uh, I do have a personal um reserve about working from home our business in itself couldn't people in our business obviously couldn't work from home Mm -hmm. even in the office we're very interdependent um i think there are certain businesses that completely lend themselves to working from home especially if somebody works in an independent manner my daughter for example is um, a tax consultant and has independent projects so a lot of her work can be done from home but I have a concern that the economy probably isn't moving quickly enough because people are still working from home where they'd be more effective if they were in an office environment. And I think that in itself would slow down our recovery, which is a concern. And I suppose um, another issue as well, Heather, apologies for interrupting there, is also consumer confidence as well. It's all well and good businesses opening again, but if people aren't going out to purchase, then there's still a problem, isn't there? There is, but I'm thinking one problem we've come up against this week is um, that we've been looking to find more information out about the apprenticeship scheme and the um, return to work schemes. And all the job centres are closed. Nobody really has any guidance on these schemes. And the the excuse we keep being given is that people are still working from home, so they can't respond, which is concerning because... We have a gap for probably about 20 young people that we could actually utilise in the next six to eight weeks. Um, so that is a knock-on effect, really, of that, the, the working from home bit. So, it, you know, it, it, it all goes hand in hand, doesn't it, really, going forward? It is, of course, as you say, all well and good that the government has announced these new apprenticeship schemes to try and stave off unemployment as the furlough scheme begins to wind down. Absolutely right. But the information on how those schemes are going to work has to be provided well in advance, doesn't it? So from a a leadership perspective, especially, this is where good and effective communication and transparency has to come in and it has to be key. Indeed, it's. It's a wonderful opportunity for companies like ourselves who uh, failed probably two to three years ago in in an apprenticeship scheme because we just could not get the interest from the young people. And we ended up recruiting sort of late 20s, early 30s to actually generate 
the workload or, or the employees that we needed at the time. Um, so I'm really hoping that this new in- initiative will actually help us to get young people on board, use our existing workforce as mentors, and really let let the company move forward in the next couple of years. Mm. And it's going to be critical, of course, accessing um, these, pro- allowing younger people um, in the uh, the UK workforce to access professions such as this and get the training that they need. Because with the um, new immigration laws coming in, of course, at the beginning of next year, it's going to make reliance on foreign labour that little bit more difficult in a lot of industries, isn't it? So that's also another challenge that business is going to have to contend with. It is indeed. Um, I-, I think... We've, we've got to be very forward-looking and, and have vision, really, as to how uh, our workforces move forward. And I think our industry in general has got a challenge uh, to make it more attractive. We're very lucky in our, our business. We run our own training school mm-hmm. and have developed a program for a mentoring scheme and an in-house training scheme so that it, we're all ready to go, really, because we were here two and a half years ago, but at least this time we've got some financial backing potentially, uh, which enables us to to make the the jobs available to even more young people. It's really interesting uh, that we've sort of strayed onto this topic of recruitment and sort of access to opportunities in the profession for young people, Heather, because it has been some time now since APB Group was featured in the Parliamentary Review, an indispensable guide to best practice, of course. And at that time when you submitted an article, you wrote in 2018 that going forward, the country needs to focus on a different balance between education and its links with industry, commerce and government. Um, you mentioned something of a legacy hangover from successive um, ministries, which has remained a challenge. And research would suggest that too much focus has been placed on encouraging young people into university education, while apprenticeships and technical and industry training have fallen by the wayside in comparison. Seems to me, from what you said there, that that is an issue that still is to be addressed. It is indeed. It's it, it's a real bugbear to me uh, that apprenticeships and on-the-job schemes, and in my day, the YTS scheme, don't get the recognition that they deserve. And I really think that we, as, as a country, we need to sell these to young people because it's critical going forward. Not everybody can go to university or it's not suitable for them. And they need to be made aware that they can get an equally good career by other means. And just sort of reflecting on the position that we're in as a country at the moment, there's a great deal of uncertainty on the horizon. Of course, we made it through a global pandemic thus far, but we're still not quite sure what trajectory that's going to uh, sort of go on from here. There are, of course, recruitment issues in the uh, the industry. There's that legacy handover that we've um, t- talked about there. Um, we also have the issue of Brexit on the horizon at the beginning of uh, next year and how that's going to impact business. Um, but sort of when it comes to managing so much uncertainty all in one time, is there anything positive that you can take from this experience, almost of crisis management, if you could call it that? Would you say that this sort of whole period of time has taught you anything as a business leader? Um, I, I think the size of our business is very critical. Uh, being a, an SME type business, we have the, the foresight and um, sort of flexible personal approach that perhaps some of the big conglomerates don't have so we can respond very quickly to change very quickly to risk um, and 
provide still provide the service that we always give. Uh, and I think probably I would say that SMEs are very undervalued in the sector. There's so much so much work goes to the big big conglomerates, and the big big seem to get bigger. Uh, and we sometimes fall along the wayside. We are finding probably that designers and uh, end users go to the big boys uh, rather than come to smaller company like, companies like ourselves uh, who often work in uh, collaboration with other smaller companies to provide an equally good service. But I think the thing that SMEs do have that larger companies don't is um, the ability to be probably responsive um, flexible, less bureaucratic, um, and, and we always seem to find a, a way to drive things forward and give people value for money, essentially. Uh, so I would like to think that out of all this, uh, SMEs sort of get a, a stronger stake in the market, really, because they, we have got so much to offer. I think you're absolutely right in saying that one of the real positives that has sort of come to light as a result of this pandemic period especially is the fact that SMEs are among the more flexible and it's been easier almost for them to adapt to the challenges that COVID has thrown up. Indeed. I think uh, talking to colleagues who work in bigger organisations are suffering from the working at home syndrome and they found it very difficult to communicate throughout their companies and uh, their sites haven't worked as efficiently because they're not as in contact. And, you know, we, we are on the ground. Our people work so closely with each other, which perhaps they don't have the advantage of that. So we can see problems before they actually happen. I can certainly see where you're coming from uh, there, Heather, absolutely. And um, interestingly um, enough, um, the whole reason uh, we're here actually is um, to sort of discuss leadership and really bring that into focus and leadership of SMEs particularly during this period it only serves right to sort of kind of hold a microscope over that because um, it's shone a fresh light on issues such as mental health and well-being and in an SME environment it's far more of course common for management to be more closely engaging with those on the ground so just how have you found it sort of managing your staff at the business in terms of their sort of mental health and well-being during this period? Because people react to different situations differently, let alone a crisis such as this. And as a leader, you have to be adaptable, don't you, in being able to manage different personalities and give them just the reassurance that they need to keep them motivated. Yes, it's very important. And I think, that, I think yet again, uh, being a small team, we know, our, we know our people well and we can help them to adapt. And all, all our team leaders know the people that work for them and in, in their teams. And we, we've worked very, very closely with anybody that might have had issues. Um, and quite clearly, we, I, I think we've, we've done it successfully. Our training manager uh, has been on a couple of mental health courses. Uh, and although he's on furlough, uh, he's going to... Uh, do some presentations when he he comes back into mm. the team just to make sure that we haven't missed anything and just while we're on the topic of sort of mental health heather i understand that in the 
very busy world of running a business, it can be incredibly hectic even at the best of times. So when you do need yourself just to take a moment to sort of switch off, just how easy is it to sort of relax and sort of disengage when you need to? I'm I'm very lucky. I, I can comp- compartmentalise things very easily. And uh, I've always been lucky that when I close the office door, I go and have another life. So for me personally, it, it has been quite easy. And I think that's how I've always managed my business life, uh, by, by being able to do this and, and, and not, I think it's a gift really, uh, that, you know, I can just switch off. Uh, then when I, and if somebody actually rings me out of office, I can switch straight on again. But uh, I am lucky. Mm, that's um, really positive. And just sort of backtracking ever so slightly, um, Heather, um, we talked about sort of the idea that employees tend to look to their leaders in business just for that little bit of reassurance and inspiration sort of when they need it during a crisis such as this. Um, because ultimately that is, of course, a leader's responsibility. But when you are someone who is running a business and sometimes you need to look somewhere for a little bit of direction, inspiration, and there isn't anybody above you to refer to. Where is it that you look to to be inspired when you need to be? We have quite a good team um, of what we call first-line contacts who we work, uh, again, fellow SMEs, Mm. who we work very closely with, who encounter all the same sort of problems that we do and we've, we're, we're quite a good close-net community and feed into each other regularly so there's always a really good backup there which is again very very important because it helps in all sorts of areas uh, in our business. And while we're also on the topic of inspirations, um, what would you say have been some of the big influences on you as you've sort of developed through your career and sort of made um, a job out of leading a business such as this? Uh, I, think, I think it's a case of le- never never stop learning, really. Uh, we've always had a very collaborative style of management and APD is very much a family-orientated or- business. So each and every one, is valued and I think it's been a development over my career that I've just learned and learned and learned and never stopped learning really. It's a very interesting point that you raised there Heather actually because I almost feel um, that you can't develop into an effective leader without having that experience of trying things for yourself, maybe suffering one or two setbacks and then embracing them as learning opportunities. People have to sort of go out, do things for themselves, make mistakes in order to develop, don't they? They do. And I, I always say and repeatedly say that uh, I as a person have probably learned more from my failures than, than my successes. And I think a lot of people agree with with, with that terminology, really, uh, because it helps you to develop and grow, really, when you make mistakes. Mm, and we all make mm, them. <laughs> exactly right. I mean, as human beings, we're certainly not infallible. Um, and that goes for people in leadership roles as well. And I think that sort of hit home as well during this period when people are sort of looking to you as their leader for that inspiration, as we've already discussed. And when the information out there isn't always clear, it's difficult to sort of just keep the communication channels open and keep everybody just sort of ticking over at times, isn't it? It does come with an awful amount of pressure, a leadership role. It, it does. Um, and I... I always rise to the challenge. I think uh, 
good leaders have to and, and not shy away from things. And communication is absolutely vital in the whole scheme of things. Um, two-way communication, communication with clients, it's, well, it's, it's the nerve of business, really. Without good communication, uh, I think we're all at a loss. When you're faced with a difficult situation or a crisis, so, for example, when you knew on the um, horizon that the COVID-19 situation was going to be serious, what sort of went through your mind in terms of addressing the issue? How did you prepare yourself to deal with an issue of this scale? Well, the first thing that went through our minds was we wanted everybody to be safe. Um, So the week before the announcement, we were very prepared to have to, to... uh, close the whole business down if that's what we had to do. Um, the, the the fact that we had uh, one job that carried on uh, was a challenge in itself, um, but one that we rose to and really kept the company ticking over when a lot of other companies didn't have that opportunity. So I, it, from our point of view, that was very fortunate and our uh, workforce really appreciated the fact that uh, they had an opportunity of carrying on with a vital project. I can imagine so. And I understand that, albeit it's been incredibly difficult in a very sensitive few months, that managing a pandemic such as this can teach one an awful lot um, in a leadership role. So on that basis, this might sound like a bit of a mean question, Heather, but looking back, if you could sort of channel the experience that you've accumulated both pre-pandemic in your years in business and also managing this crisis. If you could go back maybe, say, 10, 15 years and address the younger version of yourself, is there anything that you would tell them to do differently based on what you know now? Um, no, because it, it, it's a situation that I never, ever thought that I'd find myself in where the whole country reached virtual standstill. Um, so I, I don't think... I think there's been a lot of criticism for the government, uh, which in in many respects has been unfounded because this has been an unprecedented situation. And I don't see how anybody really could have fully prepared themselves for what they were going to, uh, was going to happen. Just like we're trying to get ourselves out of it now. Um, And I really think that, you know, we need to look at this as an opportunity to actually put things right and raise to the rise to the challenge, you know, nobody, you know, we haven't not in our lifetimes that have we really had such a challenge. And I really think it's an opportunity for us to use our vision um, to find solutions to our problems. What it certainly highlights as well, I think, is the need for people in business and also in governments, institutions, communities to be reactive to circumstances as well. I mean, it's all well and good, of course, being proactive and having plans in place to sort of mitigate for circumstances such as this. But when guidelines, circumstances can change at such little notice and something like this can come around the corner with very little warning, you have to be able to react to that and take measured decisions even when there's not that much thinking time to be had. Absolutely. Um, I, I think the the ability to make quick, bold and quick decisions um, is absolutely vital. Um, and again, in a smaller business, that is so, so much easier because you can communicate very quickly. Mm. 
You can, exactly right. And if actually, Heather, you were to maybe give some advice to somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership role, a young person, for instance, what advice would you give to that person based upon all that you've learned during your time in business? Um, I think probably to be flexible and forward-looking, um, have open channels of communication, uh, lead from the front has always been one for me, um, make the most of any opportunities that come your way, don't waste opportunities, and be responsive and courteous at all times mm. with an understanding for uh, and kindness uh, to all all the people that you deal with. I think that is very sound advice indeed. That last point in particular about sort of showing that kindness and that empathy um, as a leader, I think is incredibly important because if you show that you are safeguarding the interests of those around you and you're pretty much putting yourself on an equal footing, which again, I think is easier in an SME environment, you tend to be able to get a lot more out of those people around you and you're nurturing the best out of them, but also they tend to get the best out of you as the one leading them. Yes, I think I think that's fair. It's you, you, as a leader, you lead by example, and you can't do any more than that, really. Exactly right. Um, I would completely agree with that, Heather. And just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today, I'm interested to understand, given the challenge we have on the horizon and adapting to this new normal that everybody's talking about, what do you think is next for you and for APB Group over the next 12 to 18 months? And what do you really hope to achieve during this period? Um, well, we have got a, an excellent visibility of projects coming up in the next uh 12 to 18 months that we're already working on and we have been working on before the pandemic. Um, we have got a, a very, very good collaborative um, relationship with a couple of the larger conglomerates who are actually seeing the value of working with us on a, on a project basis. We are getting involved in, in uh, early contractor um, negotiations. We getting involved in project projects at an early stage rather than being drafted in on an emergency at the last minute. Um, and I can foresee that this is a really good way of moving, moving the economy forward quickly. Um, I think in the past there's been too much red tape. We need to fast-track projects. I, I, I love the um, term shovel-ready which probably just sums up everything that we need to do in construction, and that is move quickly and get rid of all the layers so that, and, the, and the bureaucracy that, so that we can have uh, collaboration and cooperation at all levels and work closely together uh, to get the economy moving in the constru on the construction side. It certainly seems like there's plenty uh, to get your teeth stuck into on the horizon, Heather, for sure. And, you know, I think it would actually be fantastic in future once we have a better idea as to how the new normal is shaping up to catch up and have you back on the show with us just to see how these projects are coming along and just assess at that point just where we are at as well in terms of the pandemic. Well, that that, that would be very good. It would um, be lovely to see how things develop over the next 12 months. We've got one or two exciting um, 
new products, uh, projects, especially in sustainability, which is something that we've been working really hard towards probably for the past five years, looking at uh, really sustainable um, materials like uh, aluminium for bridges, whereas steel's been used in the past, and even fibre-reinforced polymer, FRP, as we say, uh, these projects are something that are really going to come to the fore because as a business, we believe that sustainability should be essential, not optional. And I think that's something else that we as an industry need to work hard towards. Mm, certainly so. Heather, I have to say it's been a real, real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme today to discuss your take on leadership, your experience of uh, this uh, pandemic thus far, and also um, to just sort of lift the lid on what's going on at APB Group as well. And until we do hopefully speak again in future, when hopefully there'll be some more positive news to share, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on, because it's fair to say we're certainly not out of the woods with the pandemic situation yet. We're certainly not, um, and you too stay safe, and I appreciate the opportunity being able to speak with you today. Likewise, Heather, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the show. And for those tuning in and listening today, please do continue to be sensible with the lifting of lockdown restrictions. Take care of yourself and others and stay safe because it really does make a tangible difference in saving lives. I was speaking today to Heather Graham, Business and Finance Director of APB Group. I hope you all enjoyed the interview and, of course, learning more about how the whole team at the business is continuing to raise standards even throughout this challenging time. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field, the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association a trade body for firms who provide such services for both individuals and families. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Liz. All of that is coming up next. I'm Jonathan White and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in uh, uh, across the board these days, but of course, it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago. And of course, um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right. Yes. Um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, But both, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nearly 30 years now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, As PIMFA, it's it's been nearly three years now. And the... uh probably a very wise move because uh, the the uh, uh, PIMFA's been going from strength to strength uh, since. Uh, what would you say at the moment uh, is, are, are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of, um, of businesses which all have 
one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they they face the consumer. Um, so whether that is face to face or whether that is um, online, uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, 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 a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's, it's very challenging um, to... Um, kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world so uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and uh, yes. an investment management firm to help you um, because it is quite a complex arena and that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally so um, if you have that as a backdrop uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post-Brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, it, maybe Elizabeth, quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Liz, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think they're, they're the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, per, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's go it's just it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also yeah. quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum, because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters and you know school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or, you know, that they 
they deal with on a day-to-day basis, which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money, um, the better, I think, because that then we'll start to promote a culture of, of savings and investments, which we so badly need in our in in in, in our um, in our country. Without a doubt, Liz, because and again, you've hit the nail on the head. Because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah, uh, and you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think as, um, uh, for example, uh, with with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least. Whether they become actions is another <laughs> uh, thing entirely regarding what you could consider a, for, a, a, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, uh, the system. But ty- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz, yes, I think you're right. We, we probably <laughs> shouldn't. Um now, looking at a couple of other points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seemed as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a a large majority for the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, uh, left the European Union without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole here, at least. Is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more s- far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next twelve months? Um, I think. I think that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst, you know, 31st of January came and went, um, you know, we're now we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period. Um, and for for UK um, savers and uh, and investors, uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're we're still uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied um, or will be tied to the um, European rulemaking um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds. Um, however, it, you know. The, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore, a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. Yes. What we're talking about is smarter regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in Europe, in Europe, England or U- the UK rather and and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model 
of intermediation that we have here that has caused us problems in the past and we're hoping that we will be able to affect that in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rule maker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posit- positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of, uh, of negotiation and uh, until we see where we go to with that. Uh, and of course, you've got financial services and fisheries amongst yes, the same piece, you know. <laughs> famous fellows, aren't they? Indeed, um, absolutely, absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see, I think. It, absolutely. Um, and it will be an uh, interesting year, if nothing else. Um, yes. uh, now, you, you, you mentioned there, at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, PIMFA has. Uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the FCA, um, are they at the moment doing their job correctly? Um, I think part I I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate. Um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially. Our criticism is that, you know, we we don't object to having an FSCS levy um, or, you know, the lifeboat yes. funds to pay, you know, recompense to to consumers. Uh, and, and our view is has always been that the polluter pays. But the polluters have, have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment, which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big. So that, you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm. Um, and that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, we're in the process of finalizing a paper, uh, which we um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe FCA, you should be looking at in your supervisory process, and we want to help you to do your job better. Now, I I know there's no such thing as a a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. <laughs> but if let's imagine, let's let's imagine you did have one just for the just for this afternoon, perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that uh, system, 
and perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might not want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could, um, what, what would be your number one priority? If we, if we were to, if I were, my number one priority to, to solve the system. In terms of reform. In terms of reform, mm. what regulatory yeah, reform, yes. you mean? Um, I think, oh goodness me, the one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, it <laughs> is, gosh, yes, wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter, um, which is, you know, gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them. And what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off. Great. Now I'm conscious of the time here, Liz. It's already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a, a little step back and uh, and look at um, uh, the operations of PIMFOR again. It's what PIMFOR do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organisations. Can that really, Liz, be underestimated, the importance of having those working relationships with, with the departments and the organisations that you do have? No, I don't. I, I think it's absolutely fundamental um, to any business, actually. But it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is PIMFA. Uh, I mean, we talk about the, you know the values that we have as an organisation. We we are a small organisation, uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So, relationship building. Um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt. And I, I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it, that that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or, or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think and because of the time here, we, we, I, I must start to wrap up. But um, perhaps I can ask, Liz, looking forward, and I know the next 12 months is full of uncertainty, what are uh, the plans PIMFA has for it nonetheless? Um, so I think our, well, our key priority this, this next 12 months is, is, is to be talking um, much more, um, and we, we, we have been lobbying um, a fair bit on this, but because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into, um, see the policymakers on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. They, you know, they, they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter. Um, and what does, what does regulation look like for, uh, for us moving forward? But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those, those two, um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know, we have a manifesto that's got six, that's got six pillars in it um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is, is just um, kind of, is just one of those things. There are a whole host of another, of other things, promoting the sector 
as a as a force for good and as an integral part of a of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental well being uh, is is another key strand of, of activity. So I think future regulation, future supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be a, a more important year. Uh, or has not been in a while that will determine the future all of those things and perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks um, but it's been <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things Thank you, I would love to do that Liz, Thank you very much Thank you As always, it has been a pleasure both listening to and learning from our guests. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner, and I hope that you have all enjoyed listening. Until next time, I'll be occupying my usual corner in the newly reopened Westminster Arms and raising a glass to raising standards. Remember, with lockdown restrictions continuing to lift, please do continue to be sensible look after yourselves and look after others because it really does make a tangible difference in keeping the virus under control and saving lives goodbye thank you for listening to our podcast you can find every episode on itunes youtube and spotify the views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own they do not represent the opinions of the parliamentary review westminster publications lord pickles lord blunkett david curry or any other guest on the podcast if you'd like to know more about the parliamentary review please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk